0: Hey, Reveal listeners, if you've been listening to American Rehab, you don't need me to tell you about the importance of great investigative journalism. It really helps us when our listeners rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's so easy to do, and it helps others find our show. So we've got a bonus for the next 200 people who review us reveal tote bags like our t-shirts they're simple and elegant dark blue with the word facts written across the front in bold type so here's what you got to do text the word review to 474747 and we'll give you instructions on how to get one while supplies last again text the word review to 474747 you can text stop at any time and standard rates apply and when you leave the review, if you want to tell them that Al Letson is your all-time favorite host, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be mad at that. Thank you so much for your review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. Anna Ionescu. Was ten years old when she learned her parents were splitting up. She wasn't surprised.
1: And they're like, "How did you know? Like, what?" And I was like, "I just like had a feeling. I don't like, I just knew it was coming, and I wasn't upset."
0: Things at home had been rocky for a long time, and Anna thought the divorce might be her ticket out of a bad situation.
1: I was like, honestly, I kind of was like, I think this is better for all of us. I didn't realize it would turn into what it did, but I thought that, like, you know, this is just better for everyone.
0: Anna is 20 now. When her parents first separated, she and her brother Alex lived half time with her mom and half time with their dad in a small New Jersey town. It was a temporary arrangement while the parents fought for custody in family court.
2: Let us go on the record. We are recording. And we are recording in the matter of Dr. Alexiano and Dr. Ionescu. Docket number FM20.
0: Those doctors the judge mentioned are Anna's parents, Adrian and Maria, both born in Romania. And their case began an ordeal that dragged on for the next five years. The kids told the judge, David Eisenman, they had a close relationship with their dad and didn't want to live with their mom because she was abusive. They said she didn't feed them regularly, she screamed a lot, and she destroyed their stuff when she was mad. And they talked about the night they say she choked Anna for texting in bed.
1: My mom is not sane, not stable, not loving, literally abusive.
0: Anna's mom denied abusing her kids, and she said their father had turned the children against her. She declined to speak to us on the record for this show, but she read a statement to the court.
3: This total
0: 180-degree turn in my relationship with our children is a result of the manner in which defendant has portrayed me in the eyes of our innocent children defendant is teaching our children to hate me. It appeared to Judge Eisenman that the dad was undermining the mom. But he also saw enough blame to go around. He said the mom's parenting style was harsh and that the kids weren't trying to get along with her. So, he sent everyone to a family therapy retreat and gave assignments for the kids and their mom to cook and bake together.
2: Okay. Did you and your mom uh, bake the chocolate chip cookies and the brownies? Good. Well, I'm going to come down and taste some.
0: The kids say they went through all the motions with their mom, but still insisted to the judge that at home, she was not the nice person she seemed like in court.
1: We told him, you know, she'd been abusive. She, we don't feel safe. And we like told him all these things. And on the surface, he was like, oh, okay, I hear you. Like he was like taking notes, whatever.
0: As Judge Isomann struggled with what to do, he appointed a psychologist called a custody evaluator to help figure it out.
2: I'm going to ask Dr. Warren Klein to resume the stand.
0: The psychologist, Abe Warren Klein, interviewed both parents and the kids, then testified in court. Here he is answering a question from the lawyer representing the kids.
4: Would you agree with me that Alex and Anna completely believe at
3: this point... That Dr. Alexianu tried to strangle Anna. Yes, I do. Whether she did or not, their total reality is she tried to strangle me and I couldn't breathe. Correct?
0: They, they
2: both are of that opinion. Yes.
0: So Dr. Warren Klein acknowledges the kids are afraid of their mom, but then he throws a curveball by raising doubts over whether the abuse really happened and saying the kid's dad encouraged them to think the worst about their mom.
2: I'm speaking about the phenomenon of parental alienation, and I believe that nobody denies the fact that parental alienation does exist. It has always existed since the beginning of custody disputes.
0: Parental alienation. It's a controversial theory. It typically points to one parent using psychological manipulation to turn their kid against the other parent. When Anna first heard this, she felt her accusations against her mom were now being used as a weapon against her dad.
1: I don't know the exact time I heard the word, but when I heard it, I was like, oh, let me just Google it, because I don't know what it is. So then, like, I looked it up, and I was like, You're, you've got to be kidding me. Like, I think they think that our dad alienated us from my mom.
0: The idea of parental alienation was starting to make sense to Judge Eisenman. He ordered the kids to be nicer to their mom. His Anna's brother, Alex, at 14 years old, telling the judge that he was really trying to get along with his mother.
2: We've tried. Trust me. We have tried. I don't believe you. I think you're bulling <laughs> me. I don't think Let you me really through. have tried. I'm not bullshitting <laughs> you at all. Well, that's what I think.
0: On today's show, Reveal's Trey Bundy looks at why judges sometimes force kids to have relationships with parents they say abuse them. He'll take us inside family courts to learn how parental alienation became such a powerful factor in child custody battles. And he investigates a little-known industry that profits off of cases like Anna's. Hey, Trey. Hey, Al. Yeah, Anna's case is what the family
5: court system calls a high-conflict custody dispute. We looked at a bunch of them for this story, and they're a mess to report on because emotions are high, the stakes are high, you have opposing sides saying awful things about each other, and you're just trying to figure out who's telling the truth and who's lying. Add to that the parade of psychologists testifying, and you get case after case where all that
0: noise just drowns out the testimony of the kids. Like in Anna's case. Exactly. So Judge Eisenman was trying to figure out whether Anna and Alex had been alienated from their mom. How did he do that? Well, Judge Eisenman wouldn't speak to us for the show,
5: so we looked through transcripts of the trial to see what he did. He heard from both parents and several psychologists, but he also talked with the kids a bunch of times. He usually told them to be nicer to their mom, and he would chastise them when they pushed back.
2: Young Alex, I am not happy with your conduct. What? I think you know why. No. You have not done what I asked you to do. You have not done. We discussed this. I asked you to be nice to your mother. And I have. I don't believe you have. I have reports that indicate that you have not been nice to your mother. I have been very nice to her. I don't think so.
5: At one point, the judge got frustrated and took an extreme step with Alex.
2: So, I'm going to do something that your mother doesn't know I'm going to do. Your father doesn't know I'm going to do. You're not going home with your mother, and you're not going home with your father. You are going to our detention, actually our juvenile shelter, when you leave here. What? You don't seem to get it. So I will tell you, I can send you, and you can cry, I can send you anywhere in this country and make you live anywhere. No father, no mother, no contact. And you haven't done what I want you to do. And you are now going to have to rethink where you're going.
5: Alex spent that night in a juvenile shelter, but even that didn't scare him or his sister into wanting to live with their mom. A few months later, the psychologist, Dr. Warren Klein, suggested another strategy, a program called Family Bridges in California that claims to fix parental alienation. He told Judge Eisenman about it over the phone in court.
2: And it would deal with basically... I'm going to use the term very loosely, deprogramming some of the feelings that the children have about their mother.
5: I wanted to ask Dr. Warren Klein about his recommendation, but he said he couldn't discuss the case publicly. Family Bridges is one of a handful of programs around the country that claim to reunify families they say are broken up by parental alienation. One of the program's psychologists was Richard Warshak.
2: Dr. Warshak, uh, would you approach and take the witness stand, please?
5: Dr. Warshak is a Dallas psychologist and one of the leading voices on parental alienation theories. He's written books on it.
2: I'm one of the team leaders who conducts the Family
5: Bridges workshop. Family Bridges has a policy. It says they won't work with a family unless the judge gives custody to the parent the kids want to get away from. The judge also has to order no contact for 90 days with the parent they want to be with. Anna and Alex's therapist said that kind of arrangement could send the kids into a clinical depression. Judge Eisenman asked Dr. Warshak about that. We found
2: that those risks in general are, uh, the
5: risks are overestimated, that the children will
2: suffer depression despair, and what is underestimated is the gratification the children experience at being able to finally move beyond a position of rejecting one of their parents. Could you tell me the cost of the program for this family. The program is uh, $20,000 for the first segment of the program, which uh, would generally include the children going through a workshop with the unfavored or rejected parent. Um, And there would be a four-day workshop.
5: So that's $5,000 a day, plus travel, food, and lodging. Judge Eisenman told the parents that if he decided to send the kids to Family Bridges, they would have to figure out how to pay for it. He suggested they sell off family property and told the dad to reach into his retirement account. After a two-year court battle, Judge Eisenman gathered the family to tell them which parent would get custody and whether they were going to Family Bridges.
1: And we, like, knew that this date was coming. Like, we knew that that was when he was going to make the decision, finally.
5: The judge brought Anna and Alex into his chambers to tell them first. It was two days after Christmas. He told them he didn't want to ruin their holiday.
2: But I have determined that you are going to go to California to a program for five days with your mom.
5: Then he said exactly what they didn't want to hear.
2: When you get back from California, you are going to live with your mom. For a period of time and during that period of time you will not be able to talk to or see your father and that how is else, pardon for well, how long at least 90 days and that really no. depends on no,
3: you.
2: no. Okay. we've done everything you've asked why not quite. Yeah. So, this is what I've decided to do. I'll I'll give you some tissues. Actually, I didn't have tissues.
5: Anna says what happened next really scared her.
2: Give it to me. Give me your phones. Give me
5: everything you have that enables you to communicate. Anna and Alex were stunned.
2: We have to stay with the parent we don't want to stay with, and we're cut off. Completely from the yep. parent that we don't. Yep.
0: That's really not healthy.
2: That's not, that's not healthy at all. Actually, when you get to be psychologists and you have gone and done all the studying and all the research and you want to come back and tell me that it's not healthy, you
5: can do that. The judge told them they would suffer severe consequences later in life if they didn't go to this program with their mom. When do we have to go? No. Um, tonight. You're leaving tonight. Excuse me? Hold on. You're leaving tonight.
2: You're going to California tonight.
1: And then these two police officers just, like, opened the door, and the judge was like, go with them.
5: The officers took Anna and Alex to a waiting room, and the judge walked back into the court to tell the parents he was giving custody to the mom.
2: I'm satisfied that the two children, Alex and Anna, are alienated, as defined by Abe Warren-Klein, who was the court appointments expert.
5: When the hearing ended, Anna and Alex's mother picked them up from the waiting room and took them to the airport. They weren't allowed to say goodbye to their dad, who was still sitting in the courtroom. The next morning, the kids and their mom were in Northern California, driving a rental car to Family Bridges. It wasn't what Anna expected.
1: It was not like a Holiday Inn. It was like below, but it wasn't like a motel either. It was just not... Not what I had expected. Like, I was expecting, like, an official, like, place or an office or, like, a conference room. It was just, like, in a hotel.
5: The kids and their mother checked into adjoining rooms. The Family Bridges sessions took place in a conference room. For four days, they only left the hotel for meals.
1: Captive is a good way to describe it. I felt watched all the time. I felt that—I felt, like, trapped.
5: Family Bridges was started under a different name in the early 90s by a psychologist named Randy Rand. Two years before Anna and Alex got to the program, Dr. Rand's psychology license was suspended for gross negligence and unprofessional conduct. He had testified in another case that a child was severely alienated and should go to his program, even though he had never interviewed the child. Anna said Rand was there during her sessions, but Dr. Warshak, who testified in her case, ran the show. Rand and Warshak declined to speak to us. Anna says they pushed the parental alienation angle hard and told her and Alex they couldn't leave the program until they admitted their dad had brainwashed them.
1: For some miraculous reason, Alex and I have two seconds alone. I remember we walked out and I was like, Alex, we need to fake it till we make it. This is legitimately the only way we are going to get out of here. Whatever you think they'd want to hear, tell it to them. Like, just feed them anything that they want to hear. Then he was like, how am I supposed to do that? And I was like, I don't know, Alex, Like, dig deep, like, take out your inner actor in you and just like try to just act because we're not going to leave otherwise. And it's like, if I act correctly and you don't, like, I'm still not going home. Like, we both need to be on the same page. And then we locked back in after the break as literally two completely different kids than the ones that walked out. We were like, oh my God, like, hi, mom. Like, how are you? Like, fake nice everything.
5: Their plan worked. They went along with everything Warshak said, and the next week, they were back in New Jersey. But they still weren't allowed to see their dad. Remember, the judge ordered him not to contact his kids for 90 days. Anna's dad says when that time was up, a different judge extended the no-contact period another 90 days because he had talked to Anna on Skype a few times during the first order. But when the second 90 days were up, he still wasn't allowed to see his kids. That's because he'd appealed the case, and the judge wouldn't lift the order until the appeal was resolved. It was very hard. The first year was absolutely horrible. I remember the few months. I don't even know how I did my job. That's Adrian and his dad. I had my friends that told me that I was completely out, that they thought I'm going to basically, who knows... Uh, give up everything. So it looked bad from the outside. So from my good friends that I had at the college, they told me that I was in a very bad shape for probably about six months or so. Adrian's appeal dragged on, and the 90-day no-contact order stretched into three years. Anna considers that whole part of her childhood lost.
1: I felt very helpless and that there was nothing that I could do. So I was just like, Gonna take it day by day and focus on school. I try to not be in my mom's house as much as possible. Like I'd wake up, go to school, come home, do my homework in my room, like with my door shut.
5: Most of all, she missed her dad.
1: My dad still lived in the same town. I would see him like refereeing the game before my game, or driving in town. Like I'd see him like through the car window. He like obviously like, I knew his car. It was, like, a weird, like, out-of-body experience seeing your dad 50 feet from you and, like, knowing, like, you can't talk to him uh, or, like, say anything to him. And it was just, like, a very, like, unspoken, like, we would just look at each other and, like, I know. It was just kind of like a, I love you, like, I miss you, like, I'll see you soon type thing.
0: Two days after Alex turned 18, he moved back in with his father, Six weeks later, Anna left her mom's house and joined her brother at her dad's. She was still just 16. Her mom called the police to get Anna back, but they let her stay with her dad. Over the last few years, Alex's relationship with his mom has improved, but Anna still refuses to speak to her. Anna is 20 now, about to start law school so she can help kids caught up in parental alienation cases like hers. When we come back, We're going to take a closer look at this controversial theory and hear from the man who created it.
1: The treatment, number
6: one, has to be to take the child, remove the child from the indoctrinator.
0: You're listening to Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX.
4: Reveal is brought to you by the University of Virginia and the Sacred and Profane podcast. We often hear it's not polite to bring up religion, but we lose so much when we don't talk about religion. Sacred and Profane is a podcast that isn't afraid to tackle religion. Next up, how white Christians built and maintained Confederate monuments across the U.S. Sacred and Profane is produced by the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Catch season two wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for Reveal comes from Blinds.com. Transforming your home into even more of a sanctuary is easy and affordable with Blinds.com. They make it simple to shop top quality blinds, shades, and interior shutters from home with easy online ordering and free shipping. Blinds.com has helped millions of homeowners through the process and they guarantee the perfect fit whether you DIY or have them install everything for you. Go right now and see how much you can save At Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.
0: From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. Today we're looking at family courts and why judges send children to live with parents they don't feel safe with. We heard about Anna and her brother Alex and how a judge sent them to live with their mom even though the kids accused her of being emotionally and physically abusive. The mom got custody because she and a psychologist convinced the judge that the dad had turned the kids against her, that this was a case of parental alienation. I'm here with Reveal reporter Trey Bundy to talk about that. Hey, Trey. Hey, Al. So, Trey, parental alienation, it's at the center of the cases you're looking at. The concept has been around a long time, but, you know, I don't think most people know what it really is. Right. Most people, if they've heard of it at all, heard about it in 2007. The mother
5: comes home, and the phone gets turned off, and I don't speak to the child again for 10 days. So that's Alec Baldwin talking with Rosie O'Donnell and Barbara Walters on The View. He'd split up with his wife, Kim Basinger, and they were in an ugly custody battle over their 11-year-old daughter, Ireland. Baldwin left an angry voicemail on Ireland's phone, and it had just gone public. And this
6: crap you pull
2: on me with this goddamn phone situation that you would never dream of doing to your mother, and you do it to me constantly and over and over again. I am gonna get on a plane, and I'm gonna come out there for the day, and I'm gonna straighten your ass out when I see you. Do you understand me?
5: Baldwin's response was to go public, saying the reason he exploded like that was because Basinger had turned their daughter against him, and he became a spokesman for parental alienation. If
2: I never acted again, I couldn't care less. I would like to devote myself to the cause of parental alienation.
0: So Alec Baldwin gives his celebrity endorsement of this theory of parental alienation. But why does it play such a big role in child custody cases? Partly because it offers judges a solution to a complicated problem. When they can't
5: decide who's telling the truth about child abuse, a psychologist comes in and offers them a blueprint. And judges sometimes take the word of a psychologist over other evidence like the testimony of children. So how long has parental alienation been around? It got started in the 1980s, and it was first called Parental Alienation Syndrome, or PAS. PAS is the child's diagnosis. The child has a parental alienation syndrome. That's Dr. Richard Gardner, a New York psychologist, and he created Parental Alienation Syndrome. In this audio, he's lecturing lawyers and therapists back in 1998. He describes an epidemic of vindictive mothers turning kids against their fathers and making false sexual abuse allegations. That was the foundation of PAS, and he talks about it in his lecture. And we should warn folks, it gets a little graphic.
1: Let's play a funny trick on daddy, says mom to a seven-year-old. Let's go into the police station and you
5: tell them that daddy
1: played with your penis. That'll be a funny joke.
5: True story. Gardner argued that false allegations were rampant in custody cases, but he had zero evidence to prove that. In fact, most studies say that more than 90 percent of child abuse allegations are to some extent true. How does all this play out in court? Well, family court is the only place where parental alienation ever really comes up, and a lot of people think it shouldn't even come up there. It's never been accepted as a mental disorder by the American Psychiatric Association, and Dr. Gardner even talked about it more as a legal strategy than a psychological condition. And he drew up a kind of playbook for using PAS to counter child abuse allegations and get custody of the kids.
6: The treatment, number one, has to be to take the child,
5: remove the child from the indoctrinator. The indoctrinator is the so-called alienator, the parent who says the kid was abused, the one the child wants to live with. Number two, extremely restricted visitation by the preferred parent under supervision, if necessary, to prevent indoctrinations. Again... Gardner is saying to limit the time children spend with the parents they want to live with. And if that doesn't work, give primary
0: custody to the alienated parent. The alienated parent is the one accused of abuse, right? And he's saying to give that parent full custody and cut out the other parent. Yeah, just like what happened with Anna and Alex. So what happens if the kids don't want to go along with the custody switch? Dr. Gardner said that would
5: just confirm the PAS diagnosis. And he had a plan for that, too. So an option, and I'm very serious about this, is to take the kid and put him in jail
0: a day or two. Juvenile detention center. I'm not putting hardened criminals. Uh, The kid wants it. Wait, isn't that pretty much what the judge did to Alex when he didn't want to live with his mom? Pretty much. That's, That's absolutely ridiculous. You're taking a child that's already in the midst of a custody battle and traumatizing them even more. Yeah, well, Gardner had a lot of twisted ideas about kids. He said
5: that adults having sex with kids is part of normal human sexuality. He wanted to abolish laws that require child abuse to be reported to authorities. He also said the court should appoint tough therapists to deal with parental alienation cases, people who wouldn't be tempted to believe the child's allegations.
1: Insight, tenderness, sympathy, empathy have no
5: place in the treatment
1: of PAS.
5: Gardner committed suicide in 2003, and by then, mental health experts had discredited his theories. They called it junk science. Some state courts even ruled it inadmissible, but it didn't go away. A group of judges, lawyers, and psychologists still believed there was something to Gardner's theory and went to work redefining it. They decided it's not a mental health disorder, and they changed the name to parental alienation minus the syndrome. It's now an umbrella term to explain why some kids reject their parents.
0: Do we know how often parental alienation comes up in child custody cases? There's not much data on this, but I spoke with a woman named Joan
5: Meyer. She's a law professor at George Washington University, and she's finishing a national study on alienation cases. She studied family courts for 20 years and has written federal legislation on domestic violence.
7: We're seeing terrible things happening in the family courts, and a lot of it seemed to be related to parental alienation defenses. I call it a defense because it's usually raised by someone who's accused of abuse as a response to an abuse claim.
5: She says that defense is so dangerous that she almost didn't want to talk about it publicly.
7: I'm afraid to say it's a very good strategy, which is part of my ambivalence about doing this interview, (laughs) because I'm not trying to uh, help abusers get out from under the implications of their abuse in custody. But it's a very effective strategy.
5: Now, we should take a minute here to point out that while the cases we're looking at on today's show involve mothers who are accused of abuse, most of the time it's the fathers and the mothers are the ones losing their kids. We chose the stories we did because the kids in those cases are old enough to talk to us about their experiences. Joan Meyer's study looked at more than 300 cases where one parent was accused of abuse and the other of parental alienation. The findings showed that claiming alienation raises the odds that courts will dismiss abuse allegations.
7: In the alienation cases where fathers defended with an alienation claim, courts only believed one out of 51 cases of reported child sexual abuse. And in the physical child abuse, they believed only four out of 22 claims of child abuse.
5: It boils down to this. For parents countering allegations of child abuse, parental alienation is a powerful tool. And when judges make custody decisions, they tend to favor parents who cry alienation.
7: We have calculated that when fathers claim alienation as a defense to a claim of abuse, they are almost three times more likely to take custody away from the mother.
5: Jones says... Her data shows that Gardner's theory is still influencing family court judges, and she's convinced that parental alienation is more about money than protecting kids. She points to the lawyers, the psychologists, and the reunification programs.
7: I don't have any confidence in any of these reunification programs, and in fact, they give me the willies um, for a number of reasons. There's no proof that it works. There's some anecdotal evidence that it's very destructive to children, and there's really no justification for these programs other than that they make money and they further the theory that alienation is a thing, that abuse is often false, and that we can cure it and make a lot of money in the process. So it's, it's a cottage industry that a lot of people are making a lot of money off on the backs of children and and protective parents who have suffered a lot.
0: So Dre, she's talking about reunification camps like Family Bridges, right? That's right. That's where Anna and her brother were sent when the
5: judge gave custody to their mother. No one from Family Bridges would talk to us, but we did talk to a woman named Rebecca Bailey. She runs a reunification program called Transitioning Families in California. But before we hear from her, let's hear from a young woman who went there a few years back. We're calling her Melanie Cole. We're not using her real name because she didn't want to be identified as a victim of abuse. I met her in 2017 at her father's office in Miami. It's two days after Thanksgiving and Melanie's home from college. She's 19 and studying mechanical engineering at an Ivy League school. Five years ago, she was stuck in the middle of a nasty custody battle. She says her mother, Nancy, was emotionally abusive. She says it got so bad, she kept running away from her mom's house. One time, she was gone more than two months.
8: The main factors of me actually running away and leaving, what drove me to that point is I actually had guards watching me. Like my room as I slept, I had no door and my windows were boarded with wood.
5: Just like with Anna and Alex, A psychologist said Melanie was the victim of parental alienation and that her dad had brainwashed her into believing her mom had mistreated her. Melanie wrote the judge a letter begging to live with her dad. In her best 14-year-old prose, she wrote, My mom screamed at me so much, I started getting panic attacks. I wanted to kill myself just to make the pain go away. Please consider my needs and let me live with my father.
8: That was completely powerless. My letter did nothing. Meeting with the judge did nothing. No one listens to me.
5: Child Protective Services had looked at Melanie's case and found her allegations credible. Still, the judge took the word of the psychologist and gave custody to Melanie's mom, and he sent them to transitioning families to work on their relationship.
8: They told me it's only going to be five days.
5: Melanie held tight to that promise as she flew with her mom to California. She didn't want to go, but everyone was telling her it was the right thing to do.
8: You know, it sounds fun. There's horses. I've I've been riding for 12 years. I love horses. Um, And there's cooking and a bunch of other things. Um, And it's just five days with your mom. You know, I think you should go. And, you know, you'll be back here soon, and we'll figure all this out.
5: When they arrived at Transitioning Families, they found a beautiful setting right in Sonoma Wine Country and a retired cop.
8: The uh, retired police officers searched through all my stuff to make sure that there wasn't a phone there. And then I had no access to Internet either.
5: Each day, Melanie had therapy sessions with her mother and three psychologists. She said they mostly talked about parental alienation and how she was a victim of it.
8: They purposely tell kids what it is. They make you watch educational videos about alienation and brainwash. I mean, I, I tried arguing, but you can't. You, you can't argue with it because you, it's four people against one kid. You know, how do you argue with that? I'm 14.
5: Melanie says Dr. Bailey and the other therapists insisted she was delusional.
8: Transitioning families kind of tried to talk me out of certain memories or events um, in the very beginning there, and I think it took them a while to realize that, you know, we weren't going to get anywhere
5: with that. Some days, she just tried to block everyone out.
8: I still remember towards the beginning of therapy, sometimes there were times where everyone around me was hitting me so hard with information that I started covering my ears and yelling so that I just couldn't hear them anymore, and they'd keep going. And I'd sit like that for like 10 minutes.
5: It sounds more like a cop than a therapist.
8: At times, yes, I I can agree with that. At at times, I think that's what led me to covering my ears sometimes, um, because at that point it wasn't therapy anymore. It was kind of like grilling. When we got to certain events that my mom would attest to, I was told that my memory was not accurate and that a lot of times my dad had inserted those memories into my brain.
5: The five days at Transitioning Families came and went, but Bailey and Melanie's mom told her it wasn't time to go home yet. The days became weeks.
8: The excuse of why I was staying so long was... um, that the court hadn't fully worked out where they want me to go when I come back. And so I was just going to stay there and keep working on my mom's relationship until we figured out, you know, what they were going to do with me, because no one knew.
5: All this time, Melanie couldn't talk to her brother or any relatives on her dad's side of the family. She had occasional supervised phone calls with her dad. but says Dr. Bailey and her staff would stop them whenever he asked about the program. Remember... Melanie was told she would only be there for five days.
8: I was explained, well, we might be here a little longer. And I I kept getting that explanation until longer was 10 months.
5: At the end of those 10 months, Melanie's mom sent her to a boarding school. Because her mom had full custody, Melanie and her dad were rarely allowed to speak. They had a handful of phone calls and day-long visits, but no other contact for four years.
8: I don't think... Ripping a child from her parents and family members and sibling for four years could be best for anyone, honestly, so.
5: Melanie says her ordeal wasn't really about healing. It was more about business.
8: And when I say the business, I mean the family court business. So uh, therapists, uh, lawyers, judges. And unfortunately, these people don't look at, in my opinion, don't look at kids like we're people with feelings.
5: Melanie's first five days at Transitioning Families cost $29,000. We found cases where the program charged $45,000 for the same amount of time. In the end, Melanie's 10-month stay at Transitioning Families cost the Coles $214,000. And there was an emotional price, too.
8: Looking back at my life, that is the saddest thing to me, that I kind of lost out on my childhood. I lost out on my father. I lost out on my brother being there. And I lost out on all the other family members. And it's it's really sad. And that's something that's going to haunt me forever. And they did that to me.
0: After Melanie was sent to a boarding school, her mom and Dr. Bailey were not ready to cut ties. They worked together to open a new reunification camp in Miami. Next, Trey has some questions for Dr. Bailey about her program.
5: Do you ever worry that you're reuniting a kid with an abuser?
3: You know, I think, um... I think I would challenge that.
0: This is Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Edson. The story we just heard from Melanie Cole is an example of the family court system sticking kids with parents they don't want to be with. According to Melanie, the 10 months she spent with her mom at a reunification program caused more pain than healing. Reporter Trey Bundy wanted to talk to the woman who ran the camp, Dr. Rebecca Bailey. She agreed to talk on the condition that we didn't ask her about specific cases. Trey picks up the story. Dr. Bailey started transitioning
5: families in 2006. And despite what I heard from Melanie and other families, Bailey has some boosters. In fact, for a psychologist, she's kind of famous.
0: This is J.C. Dugard's therapist, Dr. Rebecca Bailey, who says you have to stare fear in the face until it cannot hurt you anymore.
5: Bailey was the therapist for J.C. Dugard. She's the woman who was kidnapped in the 90s and tortured for 18 years before her rescue made national news. Bailey appeared with Dugard on talk shows like Dr. Oz in 2020 with Diane Sawyer. Dr. Bailey owns the ranch where animals are used to help victims of trauma learn their own strength. I meet Dr. Bailey at her property in Sonoma County in Northern California's wine country. It's where she lives and runs her program. But when I arrive, The house is gone, burned down in the 2017 North Bay wildfires. There used to be a house here, and now it's not a house here anymore. So I wonder how this thing survived, because this is a little back house here. As I walk toward it, I see Dr. Bailey. She's finishing a phone call and heading my way.
3: The horse put to sleep right now, so we're a little, just got injured about an hour ago.
5: Dr. Bailey's in her mid-50s. She has long brown hair and a confident demeanor. She's not unfriendly, but she's all business, talking about the injured horse and reminding me not to ask her about any of her clients. Like any doctor, she has to protect their confidentiality. She introduces me to three of her colleagues, and we all cram into a tiny room connected to the horse stable to get out of the wind.
3: So Charles, do we have any other chairs? I really don't. How about the bench? Can we grab the bench? Sure. Oh, God, I cannot believe
5: this. We get started, and as soon as I mention Dr. Bailey's reunification program, she corrects me.
3: I think the word reunification is overused with our program. It's reintegration, reunification, basic family therapy.
5: I've seen you on a talk show before talking about how traditional models don't really work so well with families in conflict. So can you talk a little bit about... What's different about your model or how you came up with it?
3: So the traditional models are the psychodynamic, talk-based, face-to-face. We're talking more about the experiential and some cognitive behavioral um, techniques for self-soothing, mindfulness.
5: Dr. Bailey uses a lot of therapy terms in her answers, and some of it's tough to understand. What I want to know is whether there's any evidence that her program actually works.
3: Um, The evidence-based material comes from the trauma field, and one of the issues with programs that do intensives is the criteria for what is, um, what, is wh- what are we trying to achieve is mixed all over the board.
5: The key phrase in that explanation is evidence-based. It's been a buzzword in the mental health field for a long time, and it's used to give treatment programs legitimacy. It means that a practice has been observed by experts who gather data and measure results. Dr. Bailey says transitioning families is built on evidence-based therapy methods. I want to know what the data says about her program.
3: There's a lot of programs out there, in my mind, that have, not, have made great claims based on their own data analysis. And so we've chosen to err on the side of not putting data analysis out there.
5: When you say that you've chosen not to put a data analysis out there, does that mean the data there has been some data analysis uh, regarding no, the program? No,
3: no, no, no. Good question. We're in queue for a group at of University of Toronto to look at the families. But the challenge has been, and you'll see this in the research, the challenge has been apples to oranges. What are we saying these programs do?
5: Dr. Bailey says she's handled about 250 high-conflict custody cases. I've talked with a half-dozen parents whose kids were sent to transitioning families without them, all unsatisfied customers. But Bailey says most of the families she works with don't fall into that category.
3: Typically, by the end of the first day, they've relaxed. And it's not because we do any juju magic. It's, it's you know, we do some good, solid, concrete work.
5: I ask her if she can put me in touch with some clients who could talk about that. But she says no. Doing that would violate ethical guidelines. But she insists the families we've spoken to are outliers.
3: In a very, very minute piece of this, people that you will have a kid maybe that leaves here and says, it was terrible, it was miserable, I was so unhappy. And that's about the extreme loyalty bind and the pressure these kids get into.
5: The families we've talked to say it's Dr. Bailey who puts pressure on kids, that she tries to convince them they've been alienated. Remember, a lot of the mental health community doesn't buy into parental alienation. So I ask her whether she thinks it's a real disorder.
3: It is a cluster of symptoms, and there are certain cases where there appears to be a cluster of symptoms that may be supporting resistance, contact resistance. But we use contact resistance more than alienation.
5: It's hard to cut through the semantics here, but what she's saying is theories about parental alienation are still evolving and so were the names for it. She does acknowledge that parental alienation has been weaponized by parents fighting abuse allegations. But she says transitioning families doesn't work with abusive parents.
3: If there's a question mark enough, we won't take them.
5: So what do you say to a kid who is, you know, in your program and says... You know, I was abused, and maybe I was abused and nobody believes me, or I don't want to be with this parent right now, you know, in this reunification situation because I don't feel safe around this person or they were abusive. What do you say to that kid?
3: I think that the abuse piece is a, such a small part of the work that we do, such a small. If we consciously, in our heart, in our perspective, in our clinical information, had a concern about a parent, of course we would report it. Of course we would would make a statement. To who? CPS.
5: Do you ever worry that you're reuniting a kid with an abuser?
3: You know, I think... um, I think I would challenge that. And of course, we, I mean, even in outpatient therapy, mm-hmm. when you have an unsubstantiated case, you, you, you think about it, but with what I honestly would, <laughs> I can't get into specific cases, but I would honestly take that, I would, I would challenge that assertion.
5: It's frustrating that we can't talk about the specific cases I'm looking at the ones where the parents are angry because they lost their kids. A point Dr. Bailey makes over and over is that she really wants to help those parents, but sometimes they're too unstable to work with. So unstable, she says, that few psychologists are willing to do this work.
3: I think that there is a relatively small group because people get scared out of the field because of litigiousness. Um, It is the Wild West. It needs to be better regulated. It needs to be looked at responsibly. And there does need to be support for the practitioners that come at it, like I believe we do from a very ethical perspective.
0: So, Trey, it sounds like Dr. Bailey thinks her industry is under siege. Yeah, she's totally
5: frustrated with some of these parents. Like, they've lost these nasty custody fights... And now they're dumping all
0: of their anger onto her program. And she also told you that she doesn't work with parents if there's a hint that there was some sort of abuse. Is is that true? It doesn't seem clear. She
5: wouldn't talk about specific cases with me, but I know that Child Protective Services in Miami believed Melanie's allegations against her mom. I also know of another case where the judge didn't know whether
0: a father had abused his daughters, but he sent them all to Dr. Bailey's program anyway. So how many reunification programs like Bailey's are there in the U.S.? That's hard to
5: say. There's really no regulation of these programs. We looked at five of them and heard the same complaints that we heard about transitioning families, that they favor parents over kids. They insist that children have been alienated and they're expensive. Dr. Bailey actually has a better reputation than most of them, and she was the only one who would talk to us and defend her program. She admits it's expensive,
0: but she says she does pro bono work sometimes when families can't afford to pay. So... Attorneys and psychologists are making money on these high-conflict custody cases. But aren't judges responsible for a lot of this stuff? I mean, they're in charge of the courts. They decide whether or not to believe the kids, and they send the kids to these reunification programs.
5: That's right. And I had a really interesting interview with the Miami judge who sent Melanie Cole to Dr. Bailey's program.
6: You get burned out. You get frustrated. The system is not built to handle high-conflict cases, especially alienation cases.
5: That big, gruff voice belongs to Judge Leon Fertel. He spent eight years on the bench in family court and has that I've-seen-it-all kind of confidence. It's easy to imagine him presiding over a courtroom. He says he became so frustrated during Melanie's case that he left family court. He said he'd rather preside over criminal trials than any more cases like the Coles. I mean, there's a lot of
6: things that you say that you think But for me to just speak it on the record, yeah, I must have been very frustrated.
5: Custody cases are always a challenge, but add allegations of child abuse and parental alienation to that? Wow, that's a mess. Fertel says he dealt with that mess by leaning on psychologists to help him make decisions, like whether to believe that children were alienated or actually abused. They see a child for, uh, I'll
6: be generous, a, a half an hour. Okay, They see a mother for a half an hour, and they see a father for a half an hour. On the basis of that, they come back with an opinion that tells me that the child is or is not alienated, and this is what's wrong, or this is
5: what's right. Like a lot of judges, he went to seminars where psychologists encouraged him to consider parental alienation as a valid argument in court. What do you say to people who say, you know, this is just made up, this is just for abusers to get out of abuse accusations, it was created by a guy who was a questionable psychologist. You know, what would you say to people who say that it just isn't real? Until
6: you come to court and see one of these deals and see the people and talk to the mother and talk to the father and then talk to the children, um, don't tell me that it that doesn't exist. It exists.
5: Period. And then you you put the kid with the parent they don't want to be with and you immerse them in that world. And that was the instruction from Richard Gardner back in the 80s when he came up with this. So it doesn't seem like it's changed too much in the last 30 years. That's the general plan. You got another one?
6: And I've discussed the issue with lawyers, judges, and mental health professionals over the years. And we are not alone, Trey, in that we don't have a better solution.
5: In Melanie's case, Patel believed her dad had alienated her from her mom and ordered her to Dr. Bailey's reunification camp. Are you aware of any research or evidence that says that family reunification programs are effective, that they actually work in terms of healing relationships between parents and kids who do not want to see them?
6: I am not aware of any such research because it's it is experimental. It's not, you know, it's not like You know, you want to fix a broken arm, this is what you do.
5: I asked him about Melanie specifically. If he knew she was at Bailey's camp for 10 months instead of five days. Or that they took her phone, kept her out of school, and cut her off from her family and friends. Or that she barely saw her dad for four years. I didn't
6: know until you and I talked that she was there for, I think she was there for longer than a, a week or two.
5: Fertel says most judges don't know what these programs
6: are really like. The no phones, the no contact, the extent of how long, um, how successful those programs are, I don't
5: think the judges in general know that at all. Fertel says family court was the toughest job he ever had. He'd go home on the weekends and stew over his decisions. Now he's clearly bothered by what he's learning about Melanie's case.
6: Uh, Now I'm starting to wonder whether that's the right solution in the first place and whether we, we should really be doing that to a child who, uh, who really doesn't want to be with the other parent. Uh, are we playing God in, in trying to get the child to, to be reunified with a parent that they um, that, that they themselves believe that they don't want to have a contact with?
0: Melanie Cole is still working on her relationship with her mother. She says the time she spent at the reunification camp was good practice for how to keep things civil between her and her mom, but that transitioning families didn't heal her emotional wounds. Judge Fattel says the big problem in the family courts is that there's not enough time, money, or training to deal with the complexity of parental alienation cases. Thanks to Trey Bundy for bringing the said story and his reporting partner, Whitney Clegg. To read more about the debate over parental alienation, subscribe to our newsletter by going to revealnews.org slash newsletter. You'll get the latest stories delivered right to your inbox. This week's show was edited by Taki Telenitis with help from Andy Donahue. Our production manager is Najeeb Amini. Original score and sound designed by the Dynamic Duo, Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Fernando Mamanyo Aruda. They had helped this week from Catherine Raimondo. Our CEO is Krista Scharfenberg. Matt Thompson is our editor-in-chief, and our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado. Lightning. Support for Reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the heising Simons Foundation, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letson, and remember, there is always more to the story.